Welcome to week 53 of 60 Weeks, 60 Books. This week's book is a deeply controversial one, attacked by two great writers in the 20th century, Chinua Achebe and Edward Said. And it is a reimagining and fictionalisation of an actual journey. I first read Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness in 1982. I had already read The Secret Agent, as it was one of the set texts for my A-level in English literature. And I read Heart of Darkness before watching Apocalypse Now, Coppola's film based on the book, which was a staple of the Student Film Society at Aberdeen. I reread Heart of Darkness in my last year at university, having chosen Conrad as one of the authors I would focus on for finals. At that stage, there were other Conrad novels I preferred, and I did not re-engage with Heart of Darkness for many years. It was in 2004, my first year at the European school Brussels II, henceforward EEB II, that I decided to teach Heart of Darkness alongside a non-fiction text, In the Footsteps of Mr Kurtz by Michaela Rong. She was a British journalist, still is, focusing on Africa, and it was her debut full-length reportage book published in 2001 about the collapse of the regime of Mobutu Sissi Seko and the rise of Laurent Kabila. It may have changed, but when I was teaching the European back, the students at the European schools studied for a monstrous four-hour paper in their mother tongue and were expected to write essays on two of the six or eight texts they had studied. We teachers were given a shared theme which crossed all of the European schools and the students had a limited range of questions aligned with that theme. That first year, our theme was Journeys of Discovery. I can't honestly remember many of the other texts I chose. I think possibly Lear, as we always tended to teach at least one Shakespeare play, definitely The Wife of Bath from the Canterbury Tales, and some classic and modern verse that met the criteria for the overall theme. In many ways, Heart of Darkness seemed a no-brainer, given its Belgian connections. However, the path I took actually led me into a somewhat sticky situation. We studied the book, my students at first baffled, then gradually intrigued, and after reading The Wrong as a companion piece, fully engaged. Fortuitously, during 2005, the Africa Museum in Tervuren also held the first major exhibition that tried to explore aspects of the Congo Free State, the land that King Leopold II of Belgium literally owned and certainly exploited from 1885 until 1908. When I had signed the contract for my job at EEB2, the school also offered to fund a familiarisation trip to Brussels so we could look for a rental property, get our heads round the prospect of moving from the UK to Belgium. We had friends living in Tervuren, so over that weekend we visited and they introduced us to the Africa Museum. In 2004, it was a truly queasy place, virtually untouched since its construction in 1898, the year of publication of Heart of Darkness. And it is a monument to the rapacious appetites of Leopold II, a celebration of a completely false tale of enlightenment and so-called civilization. 
The collection was displayed in the Palace of the Colonies, which bears an uncanny resemblance to Babar's palace in Celesteville, domed, windows darkened, a massive monument in marble to the exploitation of the Congo and its people. In dusty display cases, you could see serried ranks of beetles and butterflies, stuffed hyena, leopards, lions, chimpanzee and shrunken heads, gemstones, spears, bones and jars of pickled serpents and strange river fish. Nothing was properly labelled or contextualised. Then there are, were, the statues. Deeply offensive depictions of black people as subservient, supplicants, slaves, or alternatively primitive, dancers draped in leopard skin, twisted and contorted in body and face. There are some statues, the bases of the pillars beneath the central dome, for example, where it is impossible to remove the degrading imagery associated with the black people who came under Leopold's sway. There were investigations and exposures of the extreme behaviour of Leopold's representatives right from the start, notably one by Roger Casement, an Anglo-Irish diplomat, the British consul in the Congo, who traced the bizarre trade movements where guns were shipped out of Antwerp, whilst more and more luxurious items arrived from the Congo. Eventually, the brutality and ferocity of Leopold's representatives was too embarrassing and the territory was annexed by the Belgian government in 1908. The year after I began, by teaching Heart of Darkness, I took my English class to the museum to see this deeply controversial exhibition, The Memory of Congo. It was the product of a backlash by Belgian historians against the 2001 book by Adam Hochschild, King Leopold's Ghosts. It's a great book. It details what was essentially the rape of the population and resources of the Congo throughout Leopold II's ownership of the territory. The book prompted an investigation into its narrative of massacres, torture, abuse and plunder and possible genocide. And the exhibition was the result. Hochschild had accused both Leopold and the Belgian state of initiating genocide, a view that certainly the Belgian state of 2004-2005 found chilling and claimed to be inaccurate, although the population figures for the Congo during that period absolutely fell off a cliff. It was a shocking exhibition. You can find bland accounts on the internet of what it covered, six rooms exploring themes of hierarchies, transactions, individual encounters, cultural encounters, the construction of the imagery of colonialism, and finally an exploration of the shifts in control from Leopold's, in quotes, free state through the period of Belgian state control up to independence. Belgians and Congolese were interviewed, and although the exhibition organisers rejected Hochschild's assertions that the abuse and enslavement of Congolese people amounted to genocide, they did put on display paintings and photographs testifying to a culture of abuse and torture, with images of whippings and men standing beside baskets of hands. The atrocities committed by the force publique, a sort of private militia or police force, were well publicised. Conrad himself travelled to Congo and worked as an officer on a riverboat during 1890 for the Belgian Free State Company. 
He was contracted to work for for the Free State in this capacity for three years, but in the event stayed for only one round trip from Kinshasa to Kisangani, 1,000 miles into the interior. He kept a journal and some editions of Heart of Darkness do include these notes. It was in 1898 that he took up the notes and turned them into the novella that I taught in 2004 and 2005 and then again in 2016 in a different school. Having heard that the exhibition included explicitly violent images, I did do a recce before taking my students. They were 17 and 18 year olds. Still, I gave them clear guidance on how they should approach and use the exhibition, which was then followed up by a scheduled debriefing lesson. At short notice, it turned out that the director of the school, a Belgian called Monsieur Sphingopoulos, had chosen that lesson to observe me. I'm not sure it was entirely coincidental. Afterwards, he called me into his office for feedback. It was a delicate conversation. He asked me whether I knew what his subject had been when he was a classroom teacher. I had no idea. He steepled his fingers and said, History, Madame Clark. And here in Belgium, we never speak of events in the Congo in our classrooms. We do not teach such things. I wasn't sure how to reply. He had had a full lesson plan and the worksheets and discussion points I had ready for the students. I suspect I gave some waffly explanation for my choice of text and the importance of context, but I left feeling that the conversation had been inconclusive and I had no idea whether the lesson met with approval or not. In this case, understanding of the historical context is essential. Starting with the Congo, it was Henry Stanley, the man who tracked down Livingston, who was employed by King Leopold II to establish territorial rights over the Congo. Stanley is a controversial figure. He worked hard for Leopold and by 1885 had asserted the king's ownership over a vast terrain which was then confirmed in February of that year through an instrument known as the Berlin Act. This formalised what was the scramble for Africa between a number of European powers, setting frontiers and boundaries and imposing trading terms. So when Conrad made his way up the Congo River in 1890, the whole enterprise was only five years old. It was already exploiting the territory heavily for ivory, rubber, minerals and palm oil. The main business of the company described by Conrad's alter ego in the novel, Charlie Marlowe, seems to be ivory. It is certainly what drives Kurtz. And again, it makes me remember, early in our time in Brussels, an exhibition at the Musée d'Art Décoratif, a kind of equivalent to London's Victoria and Albert Museum. In this exhibition, there was a wealth of household objects from stays and hairpins, piano keys, lamps, card tables with ivory inlay, chairs composed of elephant tusks, vases, cabinets, an extraordinary cornucopia of desirable objects made from materials that came from the Congo, hides, horns, tusks, bones and skins. Although the basic plot of Heart of Darkness is straightforward and the book is only around 35,000 words, it is also so dense a text that the various 16 to 18-year-olds that I've exposed to it in my classrooms 
have found it at times quite impenetrable. I think it is fair to say that the prose can be convoluted. Conrad is writing in his third language, after Polish and French, and there are times when his diction and register are distinctly tricky. This contributes to the sense that Marlowe himself can scarcely believe what he saw, what he encountered. But over the years of reading and rereading Heart of Darkness, every time I find the book more chilling and prescient. The book opens as the sun is setting over London. Five men are on a boat near the estuary of the Thames. A narrator introduces the other four, the director of companies, the accountant, the lawyer, we never discover their names, and Charlie Marlowe, the only one still to follow the sea, sitting like an idol or a Buddha, ready to share another one of his, as the narrator says, inconclusive experiences. But I find Heart of Darkness far from inconclusive. It is one of the most damning indictments of colonial capitalism and exploitation, driven by the insatiable need for conquest and domination, the desire to take something from the people to whom the thing belongs. Achebe and Said attack the book primarily for its depiction of the black population. An example is Marlowe's description of boats approaching the French steamer that is carrying him towards the Congo River. Paddled by black fellows, you could see from afar the white of their eyeballs glistening. They had faces like grotesque masks, these chaps, but they had bone, muscle, a wild vitality, an intense energy of movement. Conrad is certainly guilty of stereotypical depictions of the black characters, all of whom are minor, playing only a limited role in Marlowe's story. There is also his frequent use of the N-word scattered liberally throughout the text. But arguably, Marlowe is harsher by far on his fellow employees of the company. When he arrives at the company's main station, he walks from the jetty to the offices, three wooden barrack-like structures and comes upon a chain gang of starved African workers under the supervision of another African man carrying a rifle. Marlowe stands aside and realises that he is about to encounter a new kind of devil, what he describes as a flabby, pretending, weak-eyed devil of a rapacious and pitiless folly. He continues walking and comes across first a pointless artificial hole, then a narrow ravine full of broken drainage pipes, what he calls a wanton smash-up, and then reaches at last the shade of a clump of trees. Surrounded by the rushing, steady thunder of the river running through rapids, his eyes adjusting to the sudden gloom, Marlowe realises that he has come upon a group, a mass of slowly dying workers, as he says, in all the attitude of pain abandonment and despair. He describes the exhausted, slumped, sickened figures scattered in every pose of contorted collapse as in some picture of a massacre or a pestilence. Marlowe's revulsion is a reflection of Conrad's own disgust with what he saw during that single journey in 1890. In the intervening years between that voyage and the writing of the novella, the truth of Leopold's venture emerged and Conrad himself clearly could keep silent no longer. The book is deeply ironic in tone, a level of irony that scarcely conceals Conrad's revulsion. 
not simply with what he saw himself, but with a whole apparatus of colonialism. Very few characters are named, black or white. The symbolism of the exploited black men and the white colonisers, the ceaseless contrast between the bright African sun and the darkness of what is being done to the Africans, a vein of religious illusion and imagery, all contribute to the allegorical, mythical weight of this novella. The first hint of this mythic aspect comes when Marlowe goes to Brussels, a city he calls a whited sepulchre. He goes to the offices of the company that is offering him a riverboat, then has an uncomfortable encounter with a company doctor, responsible for the safety and health of the colonial workers he is sending, often to their deaths. The offices are guarded by two elderly women wearing black, and as Marlowe puts it, guarding the door of darkness. In a clear allusion to the Moirai, the fates spinning, measuring and snipping the thread of our human lives, the women knit, impassive as young man after young man comes to the headquarters, takes their commission, goes to their post and ominously are never seen again. As Marlowe explores the company station, a settlement that grew and became Kinshasa, he has the sense that I had stepped into the gloomy circle of some inferno. He must then travel a further 200 miles by foot, past the rapids to the place where he can join his steamer, but when he reaches this substation, he discovers the boat has sunk or been sunk, and he must raise it, repair it, and provision it, before he can continue the next thousand miles up the river to the station where Kurtz, admired and distested in equal measure by his colleagues lower down the river for his success and the predictions that he will one day be a great man in the company. Over and over, Conrad mocks the white men and early on has Marlowe comment on the conquest of the earth, which mostly means the taking it away from those who have a different complexion or slightly flatter noses than ourselves and is not a pretty thing when you look into it too much. Ultimately, Marlowe is compelled to look into it far too closely, reaching Kurtz's blighted, benighted station, which has descended into a brutality and cruelty that clearly foreshadows the great state crimes of the 20th century, the genocides, the famines induced not by failures of nature but deliberate decisions and policy enforced by autocratic authoritarian leaders, the displacement of millions from their homes, the enslavement and abuse so vividly shared on our TV and now our phone screens. Then there is Marlowe's final action, the concluding, conclusive act that seals the message, for Marlowe is corrupted by his exposure to the Congo. After hauling Kurtz's failing body to the company station, after Kurtz dies on the steamer whispering the horror, the horror, Marlowe returns to Brussels and visits Kurtz's fiancée. She asks Marlowe about his final words and rather than telling her the truth that Kurtz was just one more monstrous, exploitative, rapacious tool of the company with possible a final understanding of the futility and ugliness of his own existence, Marlowe tells her the expedient lie that the last word on Kurtz's lips was the name of this young woman. 
Although I can see why Achebe and Said were so angered by Heart of Darkness, why it roused such animosity, I also think it was and remains one of the most concise, illuminating accounts of how and why we humans are so capable of evil and just as bad, so capable of standing by and allowing evil to unfold. Join me next week for another short, much-taught classic, The Great Gatsby. Gatsby.